It's the Victorian Variety Show. Sir, I rejoice to see that the monstrous absurdity of giving Cinderella a glass slipper has at length been energetically and most properly denounced as an exploded myth. At no period of manners known to the research of our antiquarian authorities on costume, see in particular Mr. Planchet's excellent cyclopedia, now in course of publication, does any shoe or slipper of this material seem to have been worn. One can readily understand the pumpkin changed into a carriage, the rats into footmen, and the other arrangements for the transformation scene wrought by Cinderella's scientific godmother, which are evidently a mythic foreshadowing of some of the most recently discovered truths of the great Darwinian doctrine of evolution. This is all reasonable enough. But a slipper of glass? The thing is preposterous. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, where I talk about a wide variety of topics that your teacher may not have spent much or any time on when you studied the Victorian era in school. But sometimes in researching those topics, another topic that I didn't necessarily think of covering when I first conceived of this podcast almost one year ago, How Time Flies, rears its head and I decide to devote an episode to it, not only because I think there's a strong chance that it might come up again at some point in my research, which suggests to me that it's quote unquote important, but also because I think it's interesting enough to warrant its own episode. I hope so anyway. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read was taken from the first paragraph of a letter titled Treading on the Fairy's Tales, written by one smell fungus dry as dust, that was printed in the January 18, 1879 issue of Punch magazine. I remember coming across some quotes from Punch in putting some of my earlier episodes together. And in a book that I just read called The Invention of Murder, How the Victorians Reveled in Death and Detection and Created Modern Crime, which, by the way, was really good and I hope to cover it in a future episode, the author, Judith Flanders, cites Punch numerous times. So, I decided it was time for me to take a closer look at this oft-cited publication and why it was so influential. In determining which quote that I should use to open this episode, however, I had a rather large selection to choose from, thanks to the Internet Archive's Punch Archive, which I'll include a link to in the notes for this episode. But only a limited amount of time to look it over. So I basically just picked a few issues from a random 19th century year and looked for something to read that I felt exemplified the spirit of Punch and could basically stand on its own. You don't necessarily need to read the rest of Mr. or Ms. I got the feeling that the writer of the Cinderella letter was male, but really, who knows? 
dry-as-dust letter to get the idea. Although, if you do come across it, I would recommend that you read the whole thing. It's not very long, and if you're a fan of satire, it will not disappoint. And if you're questioning whether Mr. or Ms. Dry-as-Dust Letter was real or dreamt up as a clever space filler by a punch staffer, you're no fun. Punch was a weekly British magazine that was founded on July 17, 1841, by journalist and social reformer Henry Mayhew and engraver Ebenezer Landells. It ran for over 150 years, until 1992, and was quote-unquote resurrected, as New World Encyclopedia puts it, from 1996 until 2002. I am pretty much going to focus on Punch's role during the Victorian era only, but I think its initial lifespan and the attempt to bring it back demonstrate that Punch was more than something that you might have thumbed through while queuing up at the market. New World Encyclopedia explains that Punch is thought to be a shortening of Puncinello, which Dictionary.com defines as, quote, a grotesque or absurd chief character in a puppet show of Italian origin, end quote. And the magazine was originally subtitled The London Charivari, as a sort of homage to a satirical French magazine of the time called Le Charivari, which, according to Wikipedia, was published in Paris from 1832 to 1937. An article by Philip Kennedy called How Punch Magazine Changed Everything notes that Landell's greatly admired how Le Charivari used wood engravings and believed that starting a similar magazine would help him showcase his own work. Although Kennedy's article explains that illustrations were a feature of Punch practically since its inception, the publication was known primarily for its often quote-unquote radical political writing, which seems due in large part to the fact that earlier satirical newspapers featured personal attacks and scandal. And most illustrations during this era were in the form of caricatures that were pretty mean-spirited. As we know, when Queen Victoria took over, there was a new emphasis, at least on the surface, on moral values and manners, which led to the need for a type of humor that could get the point across in a less outrageous and offensive way. I think it's important to focus for a moment on why this type of humor was needed. Because even though you can still see humor in political coverage today, saying that most of it is mean-spirited, not to mention, in my opinion, rather unfunny, would be an understatement, especially here in the States, which is understandable when you look at the climate, which is frightening. But that's a shame because when used properly, Humor can be an extremely effective way of sending a message to the powers that be. As New World Encyclopedia states, the use of humor in the 19th century, quote, allowed potentially unpopular ideas to be presented, a valuable aspect of a society in which freedom of speech is valued, 
and thus was a valuable component of the systems of checks and balances that allows human society to maintain and develop in a healthy fashion, end quote. Now, in today, in 2022, again, especially here in the States, that might sound like a pipe dream. And it can probably be argued that in the Victorian era, freedom of speech was valued more for some than it was for others. And that the same could be said for those quote unquote checks and balances that I just mentioned. But fortunately for the sake of this podcast, Punch was eventually able to become a leader in its use of political humor in both its written material and its illustrations. But of course, Punch went beyond politics and used humor to comment on social issues, which are sometimes tied to politics, but sometimes aren't. One of my favorite Punch illustrations is one that I came across in researching my arsenic episode a few months back. It's from the February 8th, 1862 issue and is titled The Arsenic Waltz. It features two skeletons, one of whom is dressed in a tuxedo and appears to be asking the other, who's wearing an ornately decorated dress, to dance. The caption reads, quote, the new dance of death, end quote and references the emerald green decoration that could be found on dresses and so many other consumer products during much of the Victorian era. I think this is a good example of satire that's not political, but is still calling for some type of social change. It's attempting to open people's eyes to the dangers of products that they use every day. And if enough people are shaken up by it, they can send a message to manufacturers that they want safer products. Which in the case of items that contained arsenic didn't happen overnight, but it eventually happened. So Punch was influential in the sense that it ushered in a new tone for political and social cartoons. And also in the sense that prior to Punch, the quote unquote cartoon as we know it today really didn't exist. Kennedy calls John Leach, who became a contributor fairly early on and produced around 3,000 drawings during his time at Punch as the, quote, first cartoonist, end quote. For its July 15, 1843 issue, the editorial staff wanted an illustration that would express its opinion that an upcoming exhibition of fresco designs for the Palace of Westminster, which hadn't opened yet, that had been commissioned by the political elite, was a waste of public money during a time when much of London teemed with poverty and illness. Perhaps because preparatory fresco sketches are often referred to as quote-unquote cartoons, rather than referring to his final illustration as another one of Punch's pencilings, as the magazine's illustrations had been known up until then, Leach titled it Cartoon Number One, Substance and Shadow. According to Kennedy, quote, the use of the word cartoon ridiculed the pretensions of the establishment and lampooned their grandiose attitudes, end quote. Leach's cartoon was a huge success, 
and it wasn't long before people began buying the magazine, mainly to look at his work. Although Leech's style defined Punch's tone for many years, its iconic cover, which features a grinning Punch and Toby the dog in the center, surrounded on all sides by tiny clowns, jesters, satyrs, devils, and a host of other creatures, real and mythical, making merry, essentially served as the magazine's brand for a good portion of its existence. Originally designed by Richard Doyle in 1844, it received a makeover in 1849 that was so successful that its format was retained for over 100 years, until 1954. As Simon Cook explains in Richard Doyle and the first cover of Punch, the revamped cover successfully conveyed the unique satire and parody that could be found in the pages of each issue, but also tested the waters of Victorian propriety in a rather clever way. Cook explains that the faces of many of the small characters in the margins of the 1844 version of the cover are concealed or unclear. But when he updated that cover, Doyle made their faces clearer. This gave them an impish quality that, along with Punch the character's knowing grin, subtly suggested punishment or critique of those being mocked, along with the desire to amuse readers. Cook further points out that other components of the cover's frame mock the distinction between so-called high art and so-called low art that was often made at the time, which, as I actually mentioned in my previous episode, a number of artists associated with the aesthetic movement actively questioned by emphasizing the importance of unique craftsmanship over mass production and instilling everyday household items with a sense of beauty previously associated with the so-called fine arts, like painting and sculpture. And through his inclusion of pan, cherubs, and nymphs playing instruments, according to Cook's interpretation, Doyle was mocking Victorian heroism by showing classical characters essentially playing and not being serious as they were usually portrayed. And Cook further notes that the portrayal of some of these characters on donkeys, dangling from poles and such, added a little sexual innuendo to the mix. As Cook explains, quote, it has often been noted that Victorian classicism was a surrogate for sexual expression, a means of presenting erotic themes while deflecting the charge of impropriety by transferring it onto the painting of, aesthet of aestheticized nudes, end quote. So, as Cook describes it, Doyle's second cover, which on the one hand was what I would say busy because it had so many designs on it, and thus in keeping with the abundant ornamentation that was popular during much of the Victorian era, but on the other hand, featured characters that readers could find accessible, hinted at a number of meanings that intrigued readers, and thus encouraged them to keep coming back for more. For what it's worth, I think keeping a similar cover design and characters for so long is impressive in a way. 
I'm not sure it's a decision that I'd have made if I was editor-in-chief of a publication, which I'm not, because I think it's hard to keep something interesting for so long, but it definitely makes a kind of statement. So even though it took a few years for Punch to become financially successful and find an audience, Wikipedia tells us that before long, Punch was one of the most widely enjoyed and talked about publications, whose readership included the likes of Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Herman Melville, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Thomas Carlyle, and Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, to name a few. According to an historian named Richard Altick, as cited by Wikipedia, Altick has said that based on the number of references to punch that he found in letters and memoirs from the 1840s, the publication, quote, had become a household word within a year or two of its founding, beginning in the middle class and soon reaching the pinnacle of society, royalty itself, end quote. It was considered a quote unquote conservative magazine as opposed to fun, a satirical quote-unquote liberal journal that tried to compete with Punch in the 1860s and 70s, but never attained the number of readers Punch had, and folded in 1901. I'm not going to use the terms liberal and conservative because they tend to mean different things over time. At least that's been the case here in the States. I don't know enough about how these terms have been used historically in the UK. But when you look at the readers that I just mentioned, you can see very well-educated people from the middle and upper classes represented, with royalty sprinkled in for good measure. And if you look through some issues in the archives, you'll see many references to the British colonies, representations of the Irish and other cultures that would be considered, let's just say, problematic by many today upper-class pastimes like hunting and horseback riding, illustrations of very well-dressed men and women in gowns that are elaborately decorated, if not always wearable, a piece written from the point of view of a waiter in what looks to be an upper-class person's attempt to mimic a working-class dialect, I was just going through some issues from 1889, again, I picked at random, and sharing some things that were jumping out at me. But it's safe to say that quite a bit of Punch's content in the 19th century hasn't aged well, to put it mildly. But we definitely need to acknowledge what Victorian era Punch gave us. In addition to the cartoon, John Tenniel, who did the famous illustrations for Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, worked for Punch for many years. Humorous novels were serialized in Punch, such as The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith, which was published in a series of 26 installments between 1888 and 1889. So, we can learn a great deal about life during the Victorian era if we look at old issues of Punch, and it makes sense that it's still referenced in books and articles on life in the 19th century. Now, hopefully, if you come across a punch reference in your reading or studies or whatnot, you'll have some additional insight that you may not have had if, say, 
another peer-reviewed journal had been cited. Not that I'm knocking peer-reviewed journals, but sometimes it's nice to be able to contrast them with source material from a satirical publication. At least I think so, because I happen to be a big fan of satire. And on that note, I would love to know what you think. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at VictorianVariety1. I posted a few cartoons and articles referencing cartoons from Punch recently on my Twitter account. And I, I post stuff there generally that I think might be of interest to listeners. They're not always related to my episodes, in part because I like the topic of each episode to be a surprise before it comes out, but also because this is such an interesting period, I think. So I'm always looking for offbeat and or informative things to post. So yeah, please check me out on Twitter if you haven't already. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or by leaving a tip in the tip jar if you're listening to this on the Good Pods app. And finally, if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, I would really appreciate it because it helps the show reach a lot more people. And to everyone who's been rating the show and leaving reviews and helping to support the show by retweeting, I just want to take a moment to say thank you so much. It's something that I honestly didn't expect. And really, I can't do this without you. I just hope that I can continue giving you all content that you find informative and entertaining when that applies because some of the material that I talk about is dark and I don't think entertaining is necessarily the right word to use to refer to it, but I do think that these things are important and that you should know about them. So in those cases, I try to be as engaging as possible. And thank you all for listening to this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode but in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a short piece from the April 5th, 1879 issue of Punch. I have to say, I had a hard time choosing this one. I saw some others that I liked, but they seemed to be a commentary on something broader that I either didn't know much about, or I was afraid I would take something out of context, and I try not to do that. So this one is called What's in a Name Indeed, and I think it can stand on its own. And also, it's kind of fun. Although, I apologize if your last name is Bakewell. If a gentleman is unlucky enough to bear the name of Bakewell, he should really not write letters to the newspapers in advocacy of cremation or see the consequence. Punch's obvious punsters will be set a-going and the three extra waste paper baskets will have to be put into requisition. Do, Mr. Bakewell, have a little consideration 
and recognize the obligations your name imposes upon you.